ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, this is Chickie, and welcome to The Game Changer. And we have an amazing story for you today. Really, a, a story of, of someone who personally changed his own game. He began as a penniless Romanian refugee and uh, rose to become the CEO of Young and Rubicom. And it is my pleasure to introduce you today to Peter Georgescu. Peter, welcome. Well, thank you so much, Chicky. It's a delight to uh, be on your show. I love it. And uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, we are going to talk about your book, Capitalists Arise, End Economic Inequality, Grow the Middle Class, and Heal the Nation. And man, do we ever need healing in this nation. So I can't wait to talk about the book. But before we do that, you have just a fascinating personal story. And, and I'd really like for you to set the stage with our listeners of your own personal story. Well, I'm, I'm happy to do that because uh, I'll end with a punchline. I'll end a story with a punchline that um, I'm one of those folks who was fortunate to live the American dream. Uh, mm. I'm, I'm exhibit one of that. Uh, but let me tell you where it started, because it started in, in Romania just as the Second World War uh, began. And uh, my father, both my parents were Romanian, educated abroad, but my dad was a, um, a general manager of the largest oil uh, fields in Romania. And in those days, just around the Second World War, Romania was kind of the Saudi Arabia of uh, of oil in Europe. Mm -hmm. In fact, the entire Nazi war machine ran on the oil that came out of the Ploiest oil fields. So it was a major strategic uh, sort of uh, of strategic value to the to the German war machine. Just as the war started, my father was arrested because he was part of the Allies, if you will, Romanian, but still working for the Americans, so in prison he went. It's a long story what happened to him in prison, but he survived, even survived the firing squad once. Uh, and late in the, towards the end of 45, we were reunited. My father was in prison in Bucharest, the capital of Romania. My mother was close by, and she played a role with him. They were part of a resistance movement from uh, from prison, but that's another story. I grew up in Transylvania. Sadly, I never met Count Dracula. This is a little <laughs> bit of disappointment to me, but in any case, um, he just wasn't there. <laughs> he was the creation of a brilliant writer. But in any case, uh, I, we lived with my grandfather and my grandmother, my grandfather. My grandfather was a very famous Romanian politician. He was governor or a large part of Transylvania. So anyway, we came, we were reunited with our parents and uh, in uh, Bucharest, I have a five-year older brother, so we're a normal family for about just over a year. And then my parents went to New York for just a blink. 
It was it was to be a two week trip to the headquarters of Exxon, which was in New York City. But just at that time, the Soviet military forces took control of the entire Eastern Europe, and they set up governments under the communist umbrella. Right. And now my father and mother are stuck in New York, and we are in Romania. My grandparents were babysitting for us. And, uh, and so had my father and mother tried to return to Romania, he would have had the fate of about 300,000 leaders, intellectuals in, in business, leaders in politics or religion, whatever, and those people were rounded up and killed. And, and my grandfather, who was almost 80 years old, uh, was arrested and put in prison and murdered in prison. So that was the fate, if you will, of uh, what happened in the early days of the communist regime. Now, I, I would say that uh, it wasn't more than about a year or so after my, the arrest of my grandfather, they took my brother and I to, uh, in essence, to hard labor, to, very, to a place very close to the Russian border. And there, my brother and I went to work every morning around 6 o'clock, had a 10-hour, 12-hour day, mm. and came home six days a week, obviously no schooling. And uh, we had relatively poor nutrition. We were on ration cards. Uh, and that was our life, except for about every four or five weeks, we would have a couple of hours of what I would call brain brainwashing uh, techniques. They would they would yell at us for our parents being such terrible people. They are in America, and mm. Americans are an awful country. And uh, you know, look at what's happening to you, all because of your bad parents. <laughs> Somehow, the the irony that they are putting us in a bad place, but it's my parents' fault. You know, it was amazing. But in any case, that's what they tried to do. Uh, so. That was our, that was to be our lives. For, for there was no there was no way out of that, you know. But fate intervened in an amazing way. Uh, in you know about eight years later, they went to my father and said, "Look, Mr. Georgescu, if you want to see by they, I mean the communist Romanian and and Russians." And told my father, "If you want to see your boys alive again, you have to spy for us." And my father was stunned. Uh, must have been a horrible night for he and my mother. But the following morning, he went to the FBI and told them the story. And the FBI said, why don't you become a double agent? And my father said, look, I've seen that play before. It never ends well. Sooner or later. Right. Yeah, you know, I can't do something and I don't want to do something. My parents had become American citizens by then, knowing they could never return to communist Romania. And he said, they'll kill the kids anyway, so what else? So they said, well, how about going to the public, to uh, as broad a, a, a coverage of media that you can get, and we'll help you, we'll help you, Mr. Georgescu, fan the story if it doesn't take off. Well, that was kind of at the height of the Cold War, uh, and the Russians 
were very sensitive to this, and and they have, I told my father, I said, look, they don't want to, they don't want to, uh, they want to be seen by the rest of the world as civilized and a better option for for the world to join than the Americans. So he said, the the, the Russians will make sure that they won't let the Americans kill the boys. So they went public with the story. They did. <laughs> My dad didn't need any help. Uh, every little town in America had the story of the blackmail of two mm. two little guys in Romania. So the story took off, and a wonderful woman from Cleveland, Ohio. She was a congresswoman, and an amazing woman. Look, the year is 1953. Imagine that she was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in Congress, a woman in those days. So she was an amazing person. She picked up the phone. Now, she's a congresswoman from Ohio. So she calls my father in New York and says, look, Mr. Georgescu, don't you worry. I'll get you boys out of Romania. Well, (laughs) so she went to work. Now, she had, she was amazing. She had gone to to uh, Moscow and met Stalin before, and she helped Eisenhower win the nomination in Chicago in the 1952 convention because she thought that the 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 favorite son from Ohio, Robert Taft, was not tough enough to match up against Stalin. So right. she um, convinced that the Ohio delegation. By the way, she was. Of course, chairman of the delegation, she was that kind of a person. Right, right. So when the vote came to Ohio, no, in those days they didn't have primaries, they voted. And when the vote came to Ohio, she voted as an Ohioan against the favorite son of Ohio in favor of Eisenhower, and that sort of changed the the dynamics of the election. Anyway, so eventually she goes to Eisenhower, and I can't imagine, she said, well, either Mr. President or Ike, Please get the boys out of Romania. And so a trade was arranged, and uh, a bunch of Russian spies were swapped by my bro- for my brother and myself. So we arrived in 1954, April 13th. I do remember the date, as you can imagine. <laughs> and and there, there, were, there was this kid, me. I was uh, sort of a kind of a lean uh, young man uh, who spoke not a word of English. And hadn't gone to school for five years. And one more little addendum, addendum to the story. Of course, we were interviewed by the press and all that. And and my dad gets a call from the principal of a fine uh, high school in New Hampshire, Exeter, and he said, "I'll keep a place for your son in our school." And Dad wow. said he doesn't speak English. He didn't go to school. He said. I read the story. He learned other things there. You help him learn English. This was April. Uh, and come see me in August. I did. We had dinner together. He said to me at the end of the dinner, young man, if you can pass your courses at the end of the year on your own, because there was no way for them to test me. I didn't have the language right. skills nor the competence. But if you can pass your courses on your own with no consideration for your background, you get to stay here. And if not, I'll find the right school for you. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. I had no clue what he was talking about. None. Wow. I should have said six years or something. But 
I, I, the only thing I, I, I said to him, yes, this fine. And then he said, what class would you like to be in? And I said, well, I'd like to be with boys my own age. Threw up his hands, put a smile on his face, said, what difference does it make? You will be a sophomore. So the reason I'm telling you this story is that my life really <laughs> was saved by the American people. Uh, the, yeah. the, the, the sort of the, the, the concern, the compassion that they expressed uh, in, re- in reply to the stories, the, the move that Francis Bolton, Congressman Ohio, what did she have to do with New York? Nothing. What did the guy in New Hampshire, the principal, right. he didn't have to ask me to do anything. But these were, the hero of the story is not me. The hero of the story is America. It's America. The kindness, the compassion and caring that these people have had, that they could do the right thing, a good thing, simply because they could. Right. And that to me is, and from there I went, you know, I went to good schools. I I was fortunate. I went to Princeton and graduated uh, uh, with honors from there, and I went to Stanford Business School, and I had a good career. I ended up as chairman CEO. But the real hero of the story was America that enabled me to be the best Peter Georgescu that I could be. And I would like to have my grandkids, we have three three granddaughters, have that kind of an opportunity. Or any immigrant youngster coming to America have the opportunity I had to live the American dream. And that's what led me to this book. That's well, it, it's an amazing story, Peter. And and uh, you know, I I have a, a few things in in my own life. We we adopted our son Sergey uh, from Vladivostok, Russia, when he was right. three years old, and uh, he came in April uh, of of his third year of his life and ended up. Um, beginning school uh in the fall and and so i can appreciate uh the the rigor that you had to go through in learning english now of course he was just a toddler so he barely even spoke russian but uh, you know he he still had the struggle to fit in with a group of kids who didn't really understand that he didn't understand right uh, of, so, course, uh, of course and and my son just finished his sophomore year in high school so i'm now placing myself in in your life at at yeah. what my son just faced of of uh, he of course has been with us now for 14 years but and and my daughter goes to school at the university of warsaw oh, and and amazing. so his yeah, so she is just finishing her freshman year uh, of a five-year master's program in psychology. So she has had uh, the the whole environment uh, of Eastern Europe. And, and again, a, a lot of the things that went on during uh, the story that you were talking about that made the Polish people what they are today. Oh, and, absolutely. And a very, very, very nationalistic uh, uh, culture. Uh, but but also capitalism has has really taken root. Uh, I, I spent some time with her when I dropped her off for school and was really amazed at what has happened uh, in in Poland since communism ha- has been set aside. But let, let's talk a little bit about the book now because um, you know I, I think the very interesting message in this book, and I have long said this myself. So 
so we have this in common as well, that this whole quarter-to-quarter focus that has happened, uh, I I happen to come out of the travel technology industry, and I've watched my industry, uh, you know, many of the companies have gone public, gone private, gone back public, Um, but innovation and and really an openness to different business models and, and true ways to grow and differentiate have been so stifled by that yep. quarter to quarter focus. So yep. let's let's talk a little bit about what you what actually brought you to write this book. Um because uh, again, I I love the concept. Well, you know, being in the marketing business and communication business, uh, I had the privilege of, of always being close to the customer. If I had a skill set, you know, I had a my rock, my fundamental rock was always to start with the consumer. What are they like? What are they thinking about? What are the wants, their dreams, their aspirations? And so I had an advantage because I understood America, the basic American people. Mm-hmm. And and what I began to see about four years ago is that, in fact, we have managed to create the other America, and the, Amer- the other America is in serious trouble today. So the kind of inequality that existed, and, and by the way, I'm, I will very quickly say that inequality by itself is not a bad thing. We're all unequal, you know. Some right. of us are smarter than others, work harder than others, whatever. So we're born unequal, we die unequally. That's not the issue, but when income inequality drives the loss of opportunity in this country, the loss of hope, that's when we have a problem. Because American existence, you know, the American spirit is really built around, and American exceptionalism is built around the notion that either myself or my kids have an opportunity to be the best they can be. And when that hope is gone, which is the case today for too many Americans, the vast majority of Americans will not think that. Right. And I, and I, and I said, gee whiz, that's a problem. Because the contract between the country and its citizen is broken. That's why America was great. That's what built America. That's right. what motivated America to produce and become the number one nation in the world economically, militarily, in every in every way you can think of. And that's no longer the case. Right. And well, we, we had more long-term thinking then, right? Yes. We were working yes. for the future, yes. and now the future is measured in weeks. Okay, so why is that? Years. You see, this is, this, is, this is what became apparent to me at the heart of the problem of this short-term uh, obsession, if you will. Because mm-hmm. what happened is in about 1980, this free free market capitalism, which worried about the consumer, they worried about the employees, worried about the corporation itself, and the corporation needs to be fed and nourished and supported in order to survive long-term, right? And then worried about they were also worried about the communities and the nation. And they and at the end of the day the shareholder also did very well because the company did all those good things for all these other stakeholders. 
But in about 1980, things began to change. And, and free market capitalism, in my opinion, was hijacked by this focus of short-term shareholder primacy, which is basically maximize short-term shareholder value. And so the only real consideration was given to shareholders, forget about the employees, the employees beca became a cost. And the only thing you do, business knows what to do to a cost, is to squeeze it down. And the investment in business itself went down, and basic research went down. And that's where new, new job creation starts from. And, and, and this obsession with short-term profit return to the owners became the mantra. And this, was, this is what has helped create a problem for business and this very short-term focus on returning everything to the shareholder the most you can. And so the business leaders, the CEOs, have to focus on quarterly reporting. And every quarter, your numbers better go up. Okay, if they don't, right. you're fired. You're fired. And, or the activists are going to come and, and, and buy you out and, and they throw you out exactly. and, and they, 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 they take the cash out of the company, they fire people on the streets, and then they flip the company and so forth. That's, that's outrageous. Exactly. That's not the way it should be. That's not the way business should operate. Right. So but you describe in the book that, that capitalism is actually on the brink. Tell me, tell me what is behind that statement. Well, look, this current system, which has bred this inequality, and is, is leading us into trouble. The other America has serious problems. Let's start with education. And education is poor. There's no, pre, there's no pre-K. And we know now that if a kid doesn't get a chance to develop his or her mind by the age of three, then you're in trouble. You can't compete. There's no kindergarten, but in 22 states, and the cost of kindergarten is expensive, so most Americans can't afford it. So by the time they get to first grade, they're already behind, and they can't catch up. And the schools, the public schools in those zip codes are very poor because public education is funded by real estate taxes. So if, right. if those people have no money to buy to spend on housing, the quality of the schools is awful. The dropout rates are horrendous, etc. Uh, often 55% of the homes are led by a single mom who's got a couple of jobs. And then you think about, you know, where's that dinner conversation at night where kids are have to tell, you know, how here's my day and how it went. And the mom says, right. or the dad says, well... How did you handle the bullies? Or here is how you handle a bully or a bad teacher or your peers or your this or that. Those things never happen. Right. Because there's no... And, and so, so that's, the, that's the socioeconomic problem that we have created. And it's hard to get out of it. Very hard for, for young men and women to get out unless you run very fast or jump high or something. Or you're a genius and somebody helps you to, to get out. And that's unhealthy. And here's the, here's, the, here's the fact of what inequality really means. In my research that I have done and the analysis shows that close to 60% of American homes have to borrow money to put food on the table. 
So if you want to know what inequality is all about, think right. about that. Close to right. 60% of Americans have to borrow money to put food on the table. Mm. So basically, we have no middle class left anymore. Right. You know, and that's why you look at the last election, and the prom- the people were angry. They were angry. They picked, you know, they, a lot of uh, sure. a lot of folks supported uh, Bernie Sanders for these reasons, and obviously they elected President Trump because they were angry. They wanted things to change, because right. what was promised them never materialized. So I'm sa- I am writing this book not to fix government. That's above my pay grade. But I think business can do a lot to change. And that's why I, I, I absolutely agree with you, uh, Peter. And, and, you know, it's interesting because you talk about the middle class and, and we, we think a lot about the underprivileged and, and the people who, who do go hungry and, and the kids, uh, as you said, who don't have a chance at, at equal education. And I grew up in a very middle class family. Uh, my father was a pastor and my mother was a, a school teacher. And and so, you know, we, we had a very, very modest income. The church always provided our homes, so my parents weren't even homeowners, um, you know, for the bulk of their lives. And somehow, as the youngest of three girls, and I'm, I'm the only one without, uh, not only without advanced degrees, which everyone in my family had, but I actually decided to drop out of college. Uh, so I only went to college for one semester. But I'm the one who somehow got that entrepreneurial gene. And, and so I have had my own company for 21 years now, and uh, I'm working on my second technology startup. And my last technology startup was right before the economic crisis. So, you know, here here I was, uh, you know, had done very well in my consulting business for many years and then really lost everything uh, in, in uh, just before the economic crisis, which is a bad time to lose out. But we became a part of that story of, you know, we didn't have money for groceries and my husband had worked for me. Uh, for a number of years in in my my firm, so we found ourselves during the economic crisis really losing everything, uh, eventually losing our home, and and wow. and so wow. watching now, I mean, we we've certainly have bounced back and and have been very very blessed, uh, you know that that I I continue to have ideas that I'm able to bring to fruition, and and my husband uh, is in in the job of his dreams, but but still we are at that place. And, and you call it in, in your book the perfect storm. So, uh, you know, I want to circle back to that. So we've, we've talked about capitalism being in danger. We've talked about this whole uh, issue of inequality. And, and so now we're at that perfect storm uh, yeah. for the companies that can change our future. And I want to be one of those, by the way. So, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in how the story turns around because I want to be a part of this bandwagon. And part of my game changing really is to help companies change their business model and their culture. So talk to me about the perfect yeah, storm. Yeah, I will. I just wanted to, you know, as I was, I was listening to your story and uh, and bravo to you, Jackie, and to your husband. And and obviously your your kids went through challenging times as well. Yeah. And 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 that's the story of too many of us in America today. But you see, you had the advantage of growing up in a loving, obviously a loving yeah. loving uh, home. Uh, you had the advantage of a good education and and great values in your heart. 
that that sustain you through these difficult times. Mm-hmm. But you see, these other kids don't have that. Correct. And that's what worries me. And just one more thing I'll say, uh, because I didn't fully answer. So so the perfect storm is when when too many, you know, somebody wrote in 1960s, wrote a book called Lessons on History, and they say this problem has has occurred in history many times in so many places. And he said generally it gets fixed on one or two ways. Either either income uh, or wealth gets redistributed through aggressive taxation like an 80% tax rate. And, right, right. Uh, or, or poverty gets redistributed through social unrest or through the ballot box or uh, people in the streets yes. or whatever. And the French learned that through the French Revolution and the Bolsheviks did that and the Chinese did that and in Latin America, lots of countries did that and in, in the Middle East that is happening. So for us to think that can't happen here would be a mistake. And that's why business, I say, because we have a government that right now is in gridlock, by and large, uh, it's time for business for capitalists to arise. And that's the title of the book. That's the, 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 the inspiration for saying we can do this. We don't need committees. We don't need veto power. We don't need to worry about that. We can just act differently. And what does it mean? You know the value creator, the value creators in our in our world or the free enterprise, are the employees. They are the value creators, not capital. Money's cheap in today's world. I mean, you go to the bank and ask, what do you get for your savings account? How much <laughs> money do you get on that, right? So that's right. not money. That's not the driver. That's not the differentiator. The differentiator right. in today's world is all about innovation and creativity, and that means people. And the value creators are your employees, and that's why a business needs to treat those people with respect, with dignity, and and recognize them for their true value. And then the people reward them with increases in productivity and innovation and the rest. Yes, yes. And that's what we have to go back and do. Treat people with dignity, respect, and caring, and they will pay back big time. Right. And what encourages me, Chicky, is that we we have companies that are doing that today, and they're doing mighty well. We just have to get more of them to do it, and we have to change the culture. The culture right. today is this short-term orientation. Shareholder gets everything. And by the way, the shareholder does not own a company. They don't. The company owns its own assets. So this myth was created. It's a fraud that that <laughs> the owners are the shareholders. They are not. Right. They come into right. an equity when they want. They leave when they want. They have no obligations. They're not liable to any of the problems the company has. My goodness, that's not what owners are. And right. there's no law oh, that no, they're owners. Right. And, you know, it's it's funny because uh, when, when I look at, at my own situation and, and actually, you know, getting back on the horse again after losing everything and, and starting yet another technology company, 
um, you know, the resilience. And, and I think about even the resilience of your own story uh, in Romania. And my my mother grew up in, in North Korea, in fact, in Pyongyang. So she she grew up, uh, you know, watching around her people who, who weren't privileged. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah. she was in a a missionary compound. Uh, her father was a, a Presbyterian missionary or a Methodist missionary. I'm sorry, uh, to Korea. And but but they were resilient in that they you know they they just had a lot of obstacles in their lives. And my father grew up in in uh, Brazil, and again in a small town. Uh, you know, not not a privileged family. And uh, but they instilled that resilience in in us. And and yes. I got an overdose of it. Uh, and again, got the entrepreneurial <laughs> spirit. The Lord. And, yeah. And and one of the things I love, and and even in my consulting, I talked all the time to large corporations in my industry about uh, adopting that entrepreneurial spirit. So, your your next chapter in the book, after the perfect storm, talks about the shareholder value getting lean and mean, and then then you lead into what is the way forward. So, I'd love love to talk about that a little bit, and and your experience, even at at Young and Rubicon, of you you were part of taking that company public, and so you you experienced this stuff firsthand of of having that shareholder demand, and and so so how do we move forward from from that place? Well, we've, you know, I, I said before that the two secrets to success in the future are creativity, innovation. I, I, I did not say then, but I'll say it now. And values. And right. values. And it's so counterproductive. People, Everybody thinks what you need to succeed in today's world is sharp elbows. Wrong. Wrong. What you need in today's world is for people and businesses to learn to be trusted and respected. A leader, a leader cannot lead through dictums and fear and the rest of it. That's just not America. That's just not the way it is. You know, people look at people, not only what they say, but what they do. And that's the way I think the business leader of today and tomorrow, who will be successful, are going to do that. Right. And that's where that's where caring uh, caring respect for individual is right. And I'm not advocating by pay, and I'm advocating paying people more, but I don't mean redistributing wealth. What I mean is that we need to have the employees develop incremental value through productivity and innovation. Right. And they need to share in what they produce, and that's what's not happening today. Yes. And that's what's wrong with our system because the shareholder is somehow put on top of everybody else, and they take everything. Ninety cents out of every dollar of operating income goes to the shareholders, and that's wrong. That's just right. wrong. But the irony of this, Jiki, is, and this is the tragedy, not only the irony, but the tragedy is, if you pay people more, if you treat them with dignity and respect, at the end of the day, the shareholder does even better. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Yes. And it's interesting, Peter, because I, I have a very unique business model in my company because we actually give our product away free to our clients. We pay them 10% of our revenue, and we give wow. 10% wow. of our, our, of our top-line 
to their charity of choice. But on the other side, we also put 10% of our gross revenues into an innovation fund so that when we want to do something unique, we don't have to rob from Peter to pay Paul. And lastly, we put 10% aside to reward uh, the profitability of the company back to the employees. And it's funny, as I talk to shareholders, the very first thing that they want to cut isn't the amount that we put away for innovation, because I think that 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 is pretty well uh, understood, that investing in innovation is good. They want to take away the 10% that we give away. They're like, well, have you market tested that? (laughs) And I always say, no, this isn't what we do. It's who we are. And then the other piece about setting aside the money for profit sharing uh, back to the team before we even reward the shareholders uh, is, again, another thing that I'm not willing to give on. And if and if an investor doesn't think that's a good idea, that to me is a red flag of them as you what kind of a shareholder they will be. Exactly. So – so uh, I want to invest. I want to invest right. in your company, Jiggy, because you're, you're doing everything. But you're doing everything right. Well, is, and I will tell you, thought. it's because I believe innovation isn't just in technology. Innovation no. is in culture and business model. Yeah. Well, think about what happens. Uh, what happens in any business, and, and America's importantly uh, has become a service-oriented uh, uh, nation. And 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 who delivers the service except the people? And you you fly in the bad example. You fly so many airlines, and this this is what really 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 irks me. American Airlines just a couple of months ago, no less than that, a month ago, announced that they are giving raises to their people. Okay, mm-hmm. and what they did is to increase their em- employees near to the level that United and Delta already are. Right. Not more, just to get close to them. And then there were a couple of analysts who got outraged, who said, my goodness, there's the shareholder gets screwed again. And my goodness, Uh this is terrible. And the stock of American Airlines went down 8% because Mm of the unrest of the financial community. And what they should be doing is to say, this is the time to buy American Airlines because now the people have more incentive to care for them, to smile at the customer, to make them feel more comfortable, etc. You know, it's just they got it backwards. And I I read a wonderful book about 15 years ago, and I spent no more than a minute with it. It's one of the most important books I've ever read. Because I read the title which said, the customer comes in second. So I had to pick it up, right? How can you say that? Right. But then you open the first paragraph. The first sentence said, the employees come in first. That's all I needed to read. I got it. (laughs) How 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 can your employees treat the customers well if they're being treated poorly by their own employer? It doesn't work that way. No, no, absolutely so not. This is what you understand so well. This is what you do. And this is an important lesson, I think, for everybody who's involved in managing or part of the management of a, co- a company today. Respect your custom, uh, customers, respect your employees, right. and that's where magic begins to happen. 
Well, Peter, this has just been amazing. And, and you, you finished the book with a chapter called The Time to Act is Now. So what yeah. is the takeaway that you want people to have from, from reading the book Capitalists Arise? What, what action do you suggest? Yeah. Well, I suggest that, you know, we need a little bit of courage to stand up and say, when you see a problem, you got to call it and say, that's a problem. That we need to address that problem with urgency. Because, look, if we don't do this, the whole concept of free market capitalism is going to go away. And we have to get to the point where free market capitalism serves everybody. And I say the final point that I want to make is this. In today's world, business and society operate on parallel universes. They never meet. They don't communicate. There's not a nanosecond that a CEO today worries in terms of how that does his or her decision impact society. They don't. The only thing they worry about, because that's what they are told to do by the financial community, mm -hmm. is make sure the next quarter is up. And the quarter after that, and the quarter after that, and the quarter right. after that. And that's not sustainable. It's right. not sustainable. And so you have to change, we have to change, and we need to get ahead of the posse here. Because if we don't act, and if our government right now is in gridlock, somebody, and the somebody is only one other institution, and that's business. And right. we all have to remember that only this institution creates wealth in our country. We just needs to be inclusive wealth for more people, not right. for just 20% of America, which is what it is today, but for more and more and more Americans so that we can have better education for our kids and better opportunity and we get to the point where the next Peter Georgescu or your, your uh, son who in essence was adopted have the opportunities that he and I and you guys have had. And right. that's my dream and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Well, I love it. Peter, thank you so much. Again, we have been talking to Peter Georgescu, the author of Capitalists Arise, End Economic Inequality, Grow the Middle Class, and Heal the Nation. Peter, if folks would like to, to learn more about you or be able to go and order your book, where would you like for them to look for you? Well, uh, stay in touch with my website, and you can get there by just putting Peter Georgescu, uh, and my site will come up. Or if you want to type in petergeorgescu.com, that's a direct uh, a link to my website. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time today. And again, for those of you who have been listening, uh, this is your call to action to change your game today, to take your rightful role in healing our nation and go out and get this book. I think it's a very, very powerful statement for where we are as a, as a country today. Thank you again, Peter. Thank you, Chiki, very much for the opportunity and for doing All what right. you're doing. Well, thank you so much. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. 
innovation with Chickie Fitzgerald. <laughs>